Well, good morning, Arbor. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Jake. Um, I'll just tell you, if you brought your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm uh, 23. That's where we're going to be talking from today. And uh, I'll just give you a disclaimer right from the very beginning. We did this first service. This is going to be a, a little bit of a more tough message to talk through, or it, it just will be a harder message to, to listen to. Um, hopefully not because I don't deliver it well, but just because of the content. Um, it's, a, it's a tougher topic. So, well... Uh, Start off in this way. I'm going to let you know. If, if I haven't got a chance to um, meet you um, or have conversation with you, most of you know or a handful of you know that we lost our daughter a few years ago. Um, and uh, in fact, it was two years ago, two years ago and eight months. Her name was Magnolia. Uh, this is a picture of her. She was actually a pretty funny girl. Uh, if, you, if you knew her, she was sassy. She was funny. She was a whole lot of things. Uh, I miss her every single day. I was actually looking through some memories and, and, and just times that we had spent together because I tried to write them down so I wouldn't forget. And I came across this memory where we were watching the Muppets. Anybody watch the new Muppets movie? It was pretty good. It wasn't that bad. But that was the day that Magnolia learned how to run the remote control. Uh, she was, was kind of crazy. So she learned how to run the remote control, and she only learned how to push play and pause and play and pause and play and pause. So that's actually what she did throughout the whole movie. She would go through, we'd be watching it, and then she would push pause, and then it was amazing because she would say, Mommy, I love you. And then we'd be like, oh, your heart just like, oh my gosh. And then she'd push play again. And then we'd watch the movie again. And she'd stop. And we're watching the movie. And I'm not joking. Maybe 20 minutes later, she'd push pause. Be like, oh, Paisley, I love you. And that was it. And then push play again. And she's just like, oh, baby brother, I love you. And she, I don't know why she didn't actually mention my name in the midst of it, but, uh, which was a bummer. Uh, I don't remember if she did or not. But I just, she was... An amazing girl. She was my little girl. And I miss her every single day, truly every single day. And I only share that story to ask this question. Is there anyone, how many of you, even like raising hands in this, would actually admit that you have lost somebody that you have loved dearly and you miss them dearly? How many of you would say you know somebody who has, that you care about who has lost somebody that they love? Raise your hand on that. Yeah. As every pastor says, the death rate is still 100%. It's a, you know, and so people are going, we're going to lose people as we walk along inside of this life. And so th with that being said, this message today is truly for everyone. What we're doing is we're starting a series called Helping the Hurting. And this is kind of being birthed out of what my wife and I walked through, where we noticed when we walked through the pain of losing our daughter that everybody is in pain. And specifically today, we'll talk about who the hurting is, but this is going to be our anthem moving forward this year. This is the banner in which we're crying under going, hey, we want to help the hurting. I hope, my desire is that we would be known for this as a church, that this would be our reputation. Some churches have reputations because they do orphan care really good or church planting. I would love it if Arbor was known for truly the church that gets out there and helps the hurting. And so that's our cry. And today we want to define the hurting through this series. And the first one we're going to talk about is the those who grieve. So those who have had loss. In fact, back in the, um, when we started this church, there was a series we did called Pain. And I wanted to do this talk or have this conversation about how do you actually come alongside and help somebody who is in pain? Help somebody who's experienced great loss. Uh, the church, nobody seems to get this right. And I feel like the church, we should get this one right. And the reason I feel like um, God is calling us to do this is because I feel like he's uniquely shaped this church for it. 
not just because my wife and I lost our daughter, but everyone we talk to. I mean, so many people have come here. I lost my husband, or I lost a friend, or I lost this. We've all experienced loss, and we want to lean into that pain so that we can help other people in their pain. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. I feel like that's what God's calling us to do. And so um, we'll talk about grief. And here's a couple things I learned when it comes to grief, is that grief is relative when it comes to the level of grief. When you are, uh, you know, if you have a kid and they lose their stuffy, they lose their little stuffed animal. In fact, my, my daughter left her beloved pink bunny at my parents' house in Eatonville yesterday. So we put her to bed without her beloved bunny that she sleeps with every single night. And you obviously, that was a difficult situation. Her world has fallen apart. She could think of nothing else except for bunny and how lonely bunny was until my mom promised to and pictures of Bunny having tea and being tucked into bed, and, which is going to be awesome. So we're going to be getting those pictures this next week. But, but it's all consuming for my daughter, right? Because she lost her stuff. And that's the biggest thing, the biggest loss she, in, in consuming her in that moment. Think about it when you were in junior high, right? You lost a boyfriend, lost a girlfriend. All consuming, wasn't it? Really? Crying, crying in your room. What's going on? I'll never find love again. And as parents, you're like, yeah, you'll get over it, right? <laughs> but in the moment, do you remember the agony of like, she doesn't like me anymore? You know, it just, it was all consuming. Or, you know, for some of us, it's, it's maybe we didn't lose someone, but maybe we lost uh, an, an unrealized dream or we lost um, a spouse in like a divorce or something like that. These are things that you can grieve. Truly, we lost our daughter. I was having a conversation with a friend who's up there in years and he just recently lost his wife. And in recently losing his wife, he moved um, homes as well. So he's lost his home. And then by moving out of the area, he's lost friends and everything that he knew in that point. He's lost his ability to drive. He's losing his strength, his health. He's losing all of these things and his freedom as he lives in a home with, um, with other, you know, senior folks. And I mean, that is all consuming. I mean, we lost our daughter. That's, he just lost his world. I mean, People are at different places in their grief, and so grief is relative. It doesn't have to compare. In fact, we shouldn't compare. I've lost this, therefore I've experienced more pain, or this, it, it, so it's relative. The other thing that grief is, is it's completely messy, right? They, they, you've heard the, the five stages of grief. Here they are right there on the, on the picture. You're supposed to, it goes through denial. There's some, dis, you know, uh, uh, depression inside of there. Eventually you go under that arc. And you're supposed to come up to the point where you actually accept the, the death that's happened inside of your life. This is the, the normal standard process of grief that most people are supposed to go through. Let me show you my experience. This is what grief looked like for me when I went through grief. I bounced all over the place. I'm in denial, I'm bargaining, I'm going through all those things. Typically, I find this to be more realistic that you cannot predict the process of what somebody is actually going through because it is messy, messy, messy. Every single one of us grieves differently. We respond differently. There are other parents who lost kids and I've talked with them and you know what they do? Their, their, their kid is gone, and so they shut the, the door of their kid's room, and they don't open it for 30 years. For 30 years. Now, when I used to hear that stat or that people would do that before I lost a kid, I thought, that's weird. That's really weird. There's something about, I don't even want to go in that room. It almost seems creepy. But now, hear me, after losing my daughter, I get where they're coming from. 
You want to hold on to anything and everything that you can that was. You're desperate to. You're hopelessly desperate to do that, or hopefully desperate. And so you don't want to change it. You don't want to move it around. It didn't make sense to me. It makes sense to me now. I heard a, a, a story about a widow who actually sets another plate out. She lost her husband. So when she makes dinner, she sets another plate out so that she doesn't have to eat alone when she makes her dinner. I mean, it seems like that'd be strange, but I get that. That makes sense. I have a, um, a Buzz Lightyear. I know this, okay, we're going weird now. I have a Buzz Lightyear action figure on my um, nightstand in my house. I, don't, I have a plant on there that my wife put on there. I broke my light. So the only thing that I have on my nightstand really is my little action figure. And the reason I have it is because Maggie gave it to me. It was one of the very few things she says, Dad, I want you to have this. It doesn't have a little A on the bottom of his foot for Andy. It has a little M for Maggie. We drew that on there together. But then she gave it to me. And so my son, who's three now, he'll come by and he will try to grab it and run. And I'm like, dude, that's my toy. You leave my toy alone. You can have any other toy in the house. And he knows that, but you cannot have my Buzz Lightyear. And I know it's weird, you guys. I get it. I get that I'm 40 years old. I've got a Buzz Lightyear sitting on my nightstand, but it reminds me of my daughter and it's special to me. And it's my way of trying to deal with the messiness of grief, the craziness of grief. What I'm saying is this, is when we're walking through this or we're walking alongside people in grief, we've got to be patient. We've got to be able to extend a little extra grace for the pain of which they're walking through because it's all encompassing. It's extremely difficult. In fact, what I want to do is I want to invite Allison to come up. Allison and I have been working for years, but this last year, she actually walked through a whole lot when it comes to grief. And I wanted to give her an opportunity to share a little bit. Oh, sorry. My bad. Yeah. Always yelling at me. Okay, continue. Yeah, you know you're winning at life when your boss asks you to share because you exemplify a mess. That is a <laughs> such an honor to be here and, and represent messy to you. Um, for as much as I've studied and read about grief um, and walked alongside people who are dealing with grief, I didn't really know um, fully what the messy part looked like until I lost my mom four months ago. Sleep is screwed up because that trauma slideshow seems to only click on when things are quiet and dark in the middle of the night. You lose a bunch of weight at first because death is really unappetizing. And then you regain a bunch of weight because the only thing that tastes good is cheese. <laughs> Work becomes a struggle because you have a background app that's constantly running. You're you're always consumed with your grief, but yet you're still trying to focus at the task at hand or the people that are in your environment. And because of the background app always running, it drains your battery. Your brain feels tired and you wish everyone would speak slower or softly. You wish they'd turn off the fluorescent lights and light their glassy babies instead. <laughs> Going to the grocery store is like a minefield because every aisle has a product in there that reminds you of your loved one, like smart water, and aquaphor, <laughs> or gain protein drinks. Um, those reminded me of my sick and dying mom. 
Social media is a minefield as well. Um, Facebook has a thing called On This Day, and it reflects back where you were a year ago, but sometimes you don't want to see where you were a year ago. And yet it's like a car wreck on the side of the road. You try and avert your eyes, but there's something that compels you to look over. Scrolling through photos on your phone can be like a minefield as well, because if you scroll too abruptly, you might find yourself back in October with the images there. And speaking of phones, what do you do with that person's contact information? How long do I wait before I backspace over M-O-M in my phone? Even though I tell myself erasing a contact doesn't mean that I'm erasing a person. I still haven't done that yet. And then, speaking of messy... (laughs) Even removing my nail polish, it was a weird thing and still is a weird thing. I had waited at my mom's bedside for so many weeks that I was really bugged by the chippy nail polish. So the day she died, I ran down to the nail salon, got a fresh pedicure, and then I couldn't take that polish off. I just watched the little gray dot grow smaller and smaller, and I kept thinking, she was just here. This is my same nail polish I had the day that she was here. And so the girl who once couldn't wait four weeks for a pedicure, now it's been four months, so I just feel like she was just here. Refilling my wine glass becomes a temptation in a way that never has before Buying four pairs of shoes the day after she died seemed reasonable at the time. I felt justified in rage tweeting after an unfortunate retail experience at Hallmark. (laughs) My language became unrefined because I had witnessed things that were unrefined. Emotions were stretched out and oversized because trauma and loss had shaped misshaped my heart and things didn't seem to fit right anymore my anger was bitter bigger my tears were wetter and injustice was more intolerable but on the other hand babies are dearer and romance is sweeter kindness also has indelibly inked my heart with every gesture you guys have given me every kind thought every text every little bloom that's found its way over to me those have been proofs that god loves me and he is not leaving me alone in the mess as messy as you may ever get god compels others to step near you in love offering you grace as you grieve and heal Thank you to all of you here at Arbor who have done that for me this year. Thank you, Allison. I mean this sincerely when I say you are walking the road of grace very well. So, Psalm uh, 23 is often read when somebody passes away. It's uh, every time you go to a funeral. You go to a wedding, they're always going to give you the love chapter. If you go to a funeral, they're always going to read Psalm 23. This is what it says, because as I was reading and studying it this week, a thought came to me that I've never had before. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, meaning God is enough. And here's what he does. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, which is so interesting because only God can restore your soul. 
He leads me beside, uh, uh, in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And here's the part I want you to hear today. Here it is. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so even though I walk through pain, even though I walk through unrelenting loss and hurt and grief, I will fear no evil. Which to me, when I read that, I think, how is that even possible? How could you fear no evil? How could that be? Except you've got to read the next line. This is the big part. For you are with me. For God himself is next to us. For God is beside me. He is near me. He is right there. Your rod and your staff, these are tools of safekeeping. They comfort me. The phrase that jumps off the page to me is the valley of the shadow of death. When you lose someone, you step into a valley. It is dark. It is difficult. You don't know if you can make it up the rut or if you can get out of the ditch. You're in a valley. And in here, it talks about that there is a shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death. They give it a description. What I found so interesting in this is that there is a shadow in the midst of this darkness. Did you catch that? So if there is a shadow, that means there has to be some sort of light to create that shadow. Where is that light coming from? It is coming from the one who is walking right next to you through the valley of the shadow of death. Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. And so this valley of the shadow of death is doable. It's makeable. You can get through it with Jesus by your side. And he is the light of the world. The Bible also says that we are the light of the world if we know him. And so that's the example I believe that God sets for us. He simply is, wants us to walk with those who grieve. Friends, this is the calling of our church. This is what we are to do. I feel like God has uniquely shaped us to walk with those who grieve. This means to come alongside. This means to be present with. It's a ministry of presence. We are to practice being present with somebody, to simply be with them, to walk with them. I feel we're uniquely shaped to do that as a church and that we are called to, and it will make a major difference in helping those who are out there who are in complete pain and those who are hurting. And so let's talk about this. Uh, how do we walk with people? How do we come alongside? How do we practice the ministry of presence? I'm no expert in this. I promise you that. Um, but what I did is I had the unfortunate situation to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I want to talk about a little bit of what I experienced or what I hoped I could have experienced in that process. And so the first thing I think we need to know when we are coming alongside, when we are walking with people who are hurt, is this, is we need to say something. This may seem like this is not a big deal, but we need to say something. We cannot retract. We cannot pull back. We cannot go into reverse. We need to speak up. I understand that truly so many people have the best of intentions to leave them alone. Respectfully, I want to give you your space. I don't want to interfere. I don't want to overwhelm you. I want to respect your privacy. And so sometimes we don't say anything because we want to respect them, or other times we don't say anything because we don't know what to say, right? Fear is there. We don't want to say the wrong thing, so we say nothing, which I'm telling you from experience is worse than saying the wrong thing. Because when you say the wrong thing, at least you show that you are present with them. But when we don't say anything, I think that is worse. We have to speak up. We have to say something. Very dear friends, 
of my wife and I that we had before Maggie's diagnosis were with us. And, and we fully, 100% expected them to be present with us in the process. But there were times they wouldn't even talk with us. I mean, I remember walking through Overlake and people would look at us like dead men walking, right? We're going down there and, and, and there's this long corridor and you're on your way down and I remember people coming up and pretending like nothing was going on. You know, just jolly, like I just saw them the week before Maggie's diagnosis. And there were friends we thought that would be there and they weren't there. They weren't there. And that hurt us as a couple. We needed them to be there, not to just go sit in our living room and be present with us, but we needed them to speak up. And I didn't need them to give us a phone call, right? I didn't need to have long conversations, but to acknowledge what was going on inside of our life would have been really, really helpful. So what we can do, guys, is if somebody, anybody that you know, anybody could do this level of care, send a sympathy card if you know them. You know, send them a quick email saying, I'm thinking about you. Send them a text if you're that close to them and you have your number. If you don't know what to say, put a, an, a broken heart emoji in there. That's enough because you're acknowledging what they're walking through. It communicates that they are not alone. So we gotta say something. We gotta speak up. We cannot retract. But, and I get this, we must choose our words wisely. So let me help you with this a little bit. Here are a few things not to say and all, all of these were spoken to us at one point in time. Some over and over again, some of them just a couple times. So here's what not to say. Uh, one of the major things that almost everybody says that's very difficult is to ask you, how are you doing? To give you that sympathy puppy dog eyes and go, how are you doing? You know, the reason that question is difficult in a situation of loss, the reason it's hard is because we're not doing well at all. You know, most time you say that, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing? Good. This time, how are you doing? I'm doing terrible. My world has collapsed. My world has fallen apart. And unless you're ready and prepared for me to explain that, uh, it, it just is a reminder of what is crazy and that I'm not making ends meet and I'm not, I'm not making it right now. So to ask how they're doing is not the best question. Other questions or other things people said was, everything happens for a reason or She's in a better place now. Both of those are true. God does have a purpose in every single thing he does. And yes, my daughter is in a better place right now, but I was really happy when she was here with me, right? But why the reason they're not helpful is they don't take away the pain, right? They don't, it doesn't take away the pain. They may be true, but it's not helpful. Another one, people would always reference our little angel that is now looking down on us in heaven, that is so biblically inaccurate, it's crazy. So you do not jump into heaven and then sprout wings and become an angel. My daughter is not an angel. She's still a human in heaven. She's with angels, but she's not an angel in heaven. And I know what people are doing. They're trying to, they're, you know, they're saying at least, you know, at le they'll say this, at least she's no longer in pain. Just a rule of thumb, when you're talking to somebody who's lost someone, never start a sentence with the word at least. And then try to point to the silver lining because the silver lining is not enough, even if it's true. Uh, here's another one that we got a lot. We had people come up and would share with us, um, I know how you feel. You know, I know how you feel. 
And I get why people would do that. It's an effort to try to connect and try to relate. People would say, I know how you feel. I lost my friend the other day, or I know how you feel. I lost my grandma a few years ago. We really did have someone say, I know how you feel. I lost my dog um, a couple months ago. And it's like, oh my gosh. You cannot compare. And I'm not saying you can't compare because our loss is greater. I'm saying you can't relate. We can't. You truly cannot relate. I cannot understand what you have lost and you cannot understand what I have lost on any, on any scale. Truly, I have talked with now probably hundreds of parents who have lost kids over the years and our stories do not relate, line up. In fact, there was a pastor in um, California when we got Maggie's diagnosis who had the exact same situation, same diagnosis, same death. Um, their daughter was the middle daughter. The oldest was a girl. The youngest was a boy. Literally the same thing. He left a job from a church I was very familiar with. I mean, literally our stories are almost identical except every time we talk to each other, we realize, man, my story was way different than that. So even in the same circumstances, we cannot compare, we cannot relate, we don't know how the other person feels. Uh, one of the other ones we got, oh man, this one's a fun one. Uh, he said, well, I remember this conversation so clearly. He said, well, at least you still have your other kids. You know, well, at least you're young enough that you could still have more kids. He said that like back to back. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I probably shouldn't share this um, at what I was really thinking in the moment when he actually shared that. I really just wanted to, with all my pastoral integrity, reach down and grab one of his jingle bells and, um, and rip it off, right? And I wanted to hold it in front of his hand and in front of his face. And I want to say, well, <laughs> you can still have other kids, right? You don't need this one. You got another one, right? So I'd like, it's like, oh, I know he was well-intended, you know, but that was a very hard statement to listen to, truly. And the, and the problem with all of those statements is this, is what you're doing is you're minimizing the pain that they're walking through. You're minimizing their experience and what they're feeling. Instead, what you want to do is you want to acknowledge what they're going through. You want to acknowledge the hurt that's inside of their life. And so here's some things that you could say that would be good to say. I don't want to just give you the things not to say. Uh, one, just look them straight in all of these things. Look them in the eyes and say, I am so, so, so sorry for your loss. In all sincerity, get the most sincere statement you can make and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. If you cry, cry. It's okay. I was way okay with people crying in front of me because you know what it did? It showed and communicated that they cared. It truly did. Say, I wish I had the right words, but please just know that I care. I wish I knew what to say. I don't know what to say, but I just know I love you. You could say, I don't know how you feel, which is the opposite of what most people said. I don't know how you feel, but I'm here to help however I can. However I can. You could say something like, I'm usually up late or I'm up early in the morning, and so if you ever feel like talking, you're welcome to give me a call. And I love the specific of that. I'm up early or I'm up late. Uh, you could tell them it's okay to not feel okay. It is okay to feel anger. It's okay to feel resentment and frustration and all of those things. I think it's a part of the process of loving someone that much and then having to let them go. It's okay to cry. I mean, I've said that. I mean, I have people say that. It's okay to cry and I probably will cry with you. So it's gonna happen. Just go give them a hug. You know, you may don't have to say anything. 
They know what's going on, but your presence and, 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 and what you're just speaking to them communicates that you're with them. I would say, please, like for us in our situation, I loved it when people would talk about my daughter. I still love it when people talk about Maggie. Um, and I love it when they mention her name. We gave her that name. We love her name. And when people would mention her by name, a lot of times you want to pull away, like, I don't want to make them sad. Here's the big key. They're already sad, Right? It's not, they're, you know, maybe I don't want to make them cry. Well, I can tell you this, they're probably crying already. And maybe they don't respond in tears. What was crazy is prior to our daughter's death, my wife cried all the time. I didn't cry at all. Now it's really flipped. And my wife did not cry for a long time after Maggie's passing. And me, um, I cry all the time now, all the time. You, you know, sad commercials, crazy things like that. Um, I love it when people share memories. The bottom line is this, is just say something. Acknowledge the reality of what is. That is so, so helpful for those who are experiencing that level of loss. Here's the second thing to do. How we can come alongside is this, is discern permission to enter. Um, this is, I use the word discern intentionally because you're really seeking. It's kind of intuitive. You're sensing and perceiving. Do they want me here? Do they want me here? Am I close enough in the circle of influence that I should draw closer or is this where I should stay, sit on the circle of care? There's only so much room in the center right, for people to be there with that person at the heart of it and in their home and, and whatnot. Where are you on the circle of care? Perceive that. Test the waters. When you text them, do they text you back immediately? Read their body language. When you're talking to them, are they engaged? When you're listening, do they want you to stay? Can you read that? Can you sense that? It takes a little bit of emotional intelligence, but it is super important to perceive, to discern, to sense permission to Enter on in. Very important. I, I, the, for example, um, I know of a guy um, who was passing away and his family was there. He was in the hospice. He was in the hospital. This was his last week. And in that week, there was one of his old um, uh, small group students came and he hung out with them and the family for two days. And he thought, I'm being so caring. I'm so caring to be here and to support in this way. But what he didn't realize is that the family doesn't know him. He was there for his reasoning, not for the family's. And so the question you need to ask is, do they need me here? And if they do, and you perceive permi permission to enter, enter on in. But here's how you enter, okay? You don't enter cheerfully into a grieving situation. You enter into their pain. This is humongous. You put yourself in their shoes as best as you possibly can. This is why grieving people, who, people who have lost, can relate a little bit better to other people who are losing someone because they've walked through it already and it's easier for them to put themselves in their shoes. You want your heart to break on behalf of the person that you are coming alongside. You got to allow it to do that. You have to allow the pain to come in to the point where you almost feel it to a degree, where you almost feel that pain so that you can relate, so that you can connect with them on that level. Does anybody know the verse John eleven thirty five? Anybody know what that verse is? Memorized it? What was it? Exactly. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept over Lazarus who died. It was his friend. 
And Jesus was going there, and he arrived late after Lazarus had, had died, and he was going to arrive, and when he gets there, he knows what he's going to do. What is he going to do? The, one of the biggest miracles in the Bible He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So all tears will cease. Jesus knows this is going to happen. He under, nobody else knows this. Everybody thinks he's gone for good. But Jesus arrives, and what does he do? He weeps. Why did he weep? He wept because he entered into the pain that Martha and Mary were feeling. Entered into our pain. And he felt that. That's what we need to do. We need to enter in. And when we're in there, guys, when we're in this state of coming alongside, of being present, of just being with them, here's a big key. Don't try to fix the unfixable. Don't try to fix the unfixable. You can't fix them. You can't. I, th this is difficult for me. I like to fix things. That's what I like to do. Um, the other night, Monday night, my wife was having a hard night. Baby was not allowing her to get a lot of sleep. Montana was crying a whole bunch. So the next, uh, the ne that night we're coming in, we're talking. And um, my wife is telling me the difficulties of all that she's enduring at this time with a new baby and the craziness of the kids and all those kind of things. And um, I didn't listen very well. I didn't, I don't think I listened at all. I, I mean, I got the facts, right? I knew that she was staying up, but I knew how to solve them immediately. So I helped her to adjust her plan uh, because her plan was not succeeding. So I ex proceeded to instruct my wife on what she needed to do in caring for the chi our child, um, which uh, was not good. That conversation didn't go well, uh, not at all. And, and what I realized is what my wife was really asking me to do was to listen and to be present with her to talk less, and to listen more. To listen, listen, listen. And not just hear the word she's saying, but take in the word she's saying and actively listen and putting myself in her shoes. I didn't do that. James 1.19 says this. It says, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. I will learn that someday. One day. When I can no longer talk. All right, fourth one, fourth thing we can do. This is huge, guys. Uh, we can facilitate the freedom to grieve. Once you're in there, once you're alongside that person and they know that you're there, once they trust you and you're on the inner circle, you facilitate the freedom to grieve. This is our goal. And let me unpack what that means. That means first, you meet their practical needs. Grief is exhausting. It will tire you out. It's relentless. And so they don't have the mind capacity to be able to come alongside and to, um, to do the dishes, to make dinner. That's why those meal plans are so, so, so helpful. You can help take care of childcare, house cleaning, run errands, those kind of things. That's what it means. Meet their practical needs. And here's how you do it. This is very interesting. I, uh, I, I wish this was done for us a little bit more. I didn't think about it. But anticipate their needs, and then plan to take care of those needs and ask them if it's okay on the back end, as you're like right before you do it. Here's what I mean. I had lunch with a guy named John this, this last week. He lost his daughter too. It's a terrible situation. And he was saying the best thing that happened, a lot of people will come up and they'll ask you or they'll tell you when you're grieving, let me know if there's anything that I can do to help, right? That's a nice thing to say. And it is a nice thing to say. The problem with that statement is in those moments when you're walking through grief, you don't know what you need. 
You don't know. And for someone to say, let me know, it just adds on to the pile of things that you have that you can't take care of. It's another thing for you to do. A better way to say that is anticipate what they need. And you say, here's what we're planning to do. We're planning to come and mow your yard. We're planning to come and take care of your garden. We're planning to take care of your meal on this day. Here's what we're planning to do. And then you ask, is that okay? And then they could say yes or no. That is the greatest way to come alongside someone who does not have the capacity to be able to figure it out in those moments. The other thing that you do when you're, when you're facilitating freedom is you run interference. So if there's like, a, you're, create, you're, like you're clearing obstacles, creating space, providing safe place for people to process. If there's family members that are coming in that are difficult, you intercept them. If you're on the inner, inner circle, you intercept them. And you help in those situations. If there's social media needs that need to be taken care of to try to communicate in this process of, of whatnot, you have somebody take care of that. You run, or you run that interference for them so they don't have to take care of it. That's our goal, is to facilitate. Here's the last one, and then we're almost done. The last one is remember that there is no timetable when it comes to grieving. When it comes to grief, there is no timetable. This is huge uh, because... Just because the funeral is over doesn't mean they got over it. Just because it's six months after the fact doesn't mean that they're past it. Just because everybody else has moving on and moved on with their life and doing other things and and it seems like they've forgotten, they have not. They still experience pain and it's normal for them to. Friends, it has been 993 days since Magnolia went to heaven. 993 days. That's two years and almost eight months, a little over eight months. I was having a conversation with another dad who had lost his daughter 30 years ago. And in the midst of our conversation, do you know what happened? He wells up in tears as he starts to retell the story of his daughter. 30 years later, 30 years later, friends, it doesn't go away right? This type of loss, when it's that close, when it's that deep, I had a conversation with a guy right after service who told me when his, his, he's still struggling with the, with the death of his wife. He lost his wife, and, and yes, he, he got remarried, but he's still, now he's trying to juggle, what do I do? I'm married to this person, but I still feel the pain of this person. It's difficult. It's a hard road to manage. You don't ever get over that type of pain. So when people say, you know, ah, you'll, you'll get over it in time. The only time you'll get over it is the moment you step into heaven and there is no more hurt and there is no more pain. But until then, just assume they're probably in pain and that they're learning to adjust to life and they're walking with a limp. There is no timetable. And so in light of that, what we have to do is when we're coming alongside people in grief, we need to think marathon, not sprint, not I'm gonna get you to the funeral, not I'm gonna even get you there the first few months, but to be present way past that. We've had people that have done that in our life that have been phenomenal at it. We have dear close friends who truly call us and give us extra support and says, hey, I know it's Maggie's birthday today or I know this is the anniversary of her death or hey, the holidays are gonna be tough or maybe that's an anniversary of you and your spouse. I don't know what your situation is, but remember there is no timetable. So in light of that as well, here's an idea you can do. When you go to a a funeral, instead of 
getting money and buying flowers or buying a gift or something like that to give them at the funeral, save that money, buy those flowers six months down the road when everybody has forgotten what's going on. Send them to them three months afterwards and say, just thinking about you, how you holding up? You know? And so here's the way, guys, this, if we could master this, truly, when we come alongside somebody who is grieving, we've got to say something. We can't retract. We can't pull back. We need to say something. Whether they invite you to the inner circle or not, we at least need to acknowledge the reality of their pain. And then secondly, we need to discern how close do they want us to come in. Do they want us on the inner circle? If that's the case, then jump on in. If they want us on the outside, you just want to enter in. To, you, want to, you want to find out permission to enter in. And then when you do, you enter into their pain. You take on their hurts on yourself. You facilitate the freedom to grieve. And remember that this is going to take a while. It is going to take a while. As a church, you guys, like I said, my hope is that we would help those who grieve. That is my hope. We would help those who grieve. Why? One, because we're uniquely wired for this. Number two, I really feel like God is calling us to do this. So in the fall, what we plan to do is we plan on doing this on a practical level. We, we're going in and doing all the research now and trying to make the connections. And we're going to go visit senior living centers, senior living homes for people who have lost a lot. They've lost their family. They've lost their ability to drive. They lost their health. They've lost a whole lot. And they just literally want someone to talk to and to come there and to come alongside them. And we're putting all this stuff in process so that we can mobilize, not one, not two, not ten, but all of us to go out there and spend some time sitting down with somebody who really needs someone to sit down with them and to listen to them and to care for them. And then we're going to have trainings. This is scratching the surface on how to carry um, for some of these things. Um, we're going to have my personal um, uh, counselor is going to come in and he's going to teach classes on how do you walk through grief or how do you walk your friends and loved ones through grief. We'll have some sort of grief share in the form of groups. And if you want to help right now, we have our care team that Allison leads up um, so well. And our job in that is we want to come alongside and try to help people who are hurting and meet their needs. And so anytime you write something on a card, we read through that. But I would love it if this is what our church is known for. If this is what our church is known for, that we come alongside and we help those people who are truly hurting. On an individual level, it is a sacred place to go here to with somebody. It is holy ground the moment that you enter in to coming alongside someone. If they invite you in on that, what an honor that is. It's difficult. It's hard. The veil between life and death is so thin. It's the point of intersection between heaven and earth. It's where they collide. But if someone invites you in there and you get a chance to be a part of that, it is a special thing, and you'll find that there is a hidden benefit. There is a bonus. There is a reality that comes with this. It's probably the biggest, longest point I'll ever put on the screens. It's this. When you come in close to those grieving, you'll look up and find yourself closer to Jesus. When you come alongside, when you walk with, like, like, like God wants us to, you will be closer to Jesus simply because he is close to them. It's a matter of proximity. Think about this. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close. To who? To the brokenhearted. Those who are hurt, those who are in pain, those who grieve. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So friends, I say we look for opportunities. 
Sometimes they're dropped in our lap, but we start looking for opportunities to intentionally engage with those who have experienced great loss. Not just loss of a person, not just loss of a spouse or a kid or a friend, but any type of loss. That we would come alongside them, step in and walk with them because there's people out there, there's so many people out there that desperately need somebody to be right by their side. My hope is that we could be those people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.